So let's start with a word of prayer, and I would ask for you just to be still. Take a deep breath. It's all okay. You're okay. And let go of all that stuff that troubles you, the things that stir those waters. You're okay for the next hour or so. You just, all you need to do is be here, be present, bring your questions, let things arise, be quiet if you need to be. You're okay. Let's go to God in prayer. We thank you, God, that you have rolled out the red carpet for us today here in this particular place at this particular time. We see the beauty that surrounds us, and we know that we have come through the night, been awakened by your spirit to sights and sounds that are a blessing. We've simply awakened to the day, and that is a blessing in itself. And then for many, we have seen or remembered those that we love and those that, who have deeply loved us. So we thank you. We thank you that on some, for some, it was the smell of coffee. For others, the smell of grass when they stepped outside, the sun, the sun shining on their shoulders, leading us into a new day. We thank you for the words that are before us, God. Some of them are pretty crazy. We're going to be honest with you. But you, God, in your wisdom, have guided us to put these words together to have meaning for us. So we pray, God, that our hearts and minds and spirit will be open to the leading of your spirit as we look at this text. So we thank you, we praise you, and we are so glad to be with you on this day. And we pray all of these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Okay. So why do you think that George Washington is known as the Moses of America. So think about that for a second. And why, what on earth, because it's true, if you go on, on the internet or something and you type in George Washington, you, it'll come up and it'll say, Moses of America. Why would it say that? What is there about George Washington that would make people think he was Moses of America? Yeah. Yes. She went right to it. Let's a round of applause for this brilliant person. That's exactly right. I mean, there were many other things as well. He was bringing together this group of rabble, you know, so to speak, to create and forge a nation. So there were some uh, particular, but the main thing was that he was a reluctant president. He did not, he did not want to leave Mount Vernon. He knew that it was going to be so hard to create and forge a nation out of all of this. He knew that it was going to be trouble ahead. He did not want to do it. But the difference is that these were people asking him, and he finally acquiesced. This is God asking Moses. And Moses is a little bit more hard-headed than George Washington. Let me tell you. I mean, if anybody, I love Moses in a way. Although I, you know, I have, I have feelings about him. But there are some parts about Moses that I love. And some of the what I love about Moses is he's so real with God. 
It's like God is really, truly his parent, and he can just say whatever he wants to God. And anyway, it, it's a remarkable example of a relationship that I think we should heed, take notice of, look at what it looks like, look at how different it is from our relationship with God, which sometimes is distant. Sometimes we have God being far away, up there, bigger, you know, nothing to do with, with us and we're so lowly and whatever. But that's not how the Jewish tradition is. The Jewish tradition comes close to God and sometimes it even accuses God and says, where were you when we needed you? And, you know, all of this stuff, there's this, this intimate relationship that Israel has with God and it's portrayed in, the, in this with Moses. So one of the central questions in, uh, since chapter 2 of Exodus has been whether Israel will accept Moses as a leader. That's one of the most important questions. But one of the other, the bigger question in my mind, in these particular verses that we'll read today and later on, is whether Moses will trust God and accept himself as a leader. Moses is severely lacking in A, self-confidence, B, interest, and three, maybe even an awareness of what is going on back in the land that he escaped from. So Moses is left without resolution to his concerns as we come to this uh, particular reading in chapter four. So he's left without resolution. God said that the people will listen, and Moses does not think so. So then we pick up the reading. I'm going to be uh, uh, sectioning this off in five sections so that we can read and unpack. So this is Moses' um, uh, response to God has just, let me just say this, God has just been very excited about telling Moses, and the people will believe you, and then we'll all be together, and it'll be wonderful. And then Moses says, wait a minute. And this is what he says. Then Moses answered, but suppose they do not believe me or listen to me, but say, the Lord did not appear to you. And the Lord, is, the Lord said to him, well, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw the staff on the ground and it became a snake. And Moses drew back from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and seize it by the tail. So he reached out his hand and grasped it and it became a staff in his hand, so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put out your hand, put your hand inside your cloak. He put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, his hand was leprous, as white as snow. Then God said, put your hand back in your cloak. So he put his hand back into his cloak. And when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his body. If they will not believe you or heed the first sign, they may believe the second sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or heed you, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Okay. So... Moses doesn't think that, that God is 
accurate in God's estimation of what the people will do. And God, however, has chosen to be dependent on somebody like Moses to be his agent among the people. And the acceptance of Moses by the people is actually a very critical role in what God has in mind. So that's why we see the stress in these verses, the stress on these two issues, and that is the issues of belief and obedience. We need belief and we need obedience. We need Moses to believe and Moses to be obedient. And we need the people, the Hebrew people, to to believe and to be obedient. It's two things working as one. Moses is presented to us as a, I think, singularly ill-equipped person for the task that he's called to do. And he stands before us, not as a kind of a finished sculpture, modeling leadership qualities for all time, but instead he comes before us as kind of a rough cut, hewn cut stone, insecure, scared, doubting in himself, and certainly doubting in God. But here's the thing. Maybe that's the whole point. Maybe salvation is God's work and not ours. Maybe incompetence might be the most essential qualification to becoming a leader for God. Isn't that crazy to think about? How could that be? Well, let's say you have somebody who is highly competent, highly polished, highly efficient, and there's a, a problem and you bring them in. What's the first thing they're going to do? Yeah, they're going to, they're going to think about the problem. They're going to come up with a solution for the problem. They're going to have a plan. They're going to, okay, so what happens to God's plan? You see, if the person, if, if that person, if God isn't shaping that person, equipping that person, if that person doesn't come with some kind of sense of, I'm not sure I know what I'm doing, and I'm going to rely on God, that kind of trust, especially in this circumstance, then we have a person that's going to come in with their own plan, Put, it, put their own plan in place, and how effective is that going to be? It's not going to be very helpful. For example, Moses could have said, I hear you, God. The people need help. I'm going to go raise an army, and we're going to march again, and I'm going to go to the Hittites and the, and the Malachites and all the others, and we're going to come in as a big army and take over Egypt. That's not what God had in mind. God had in mind that there's a salvation plan. God had in mind that the Israel needed to learn how to trust and listen and obey. <clears throat> That's what this whole experience is all about. So our sight is limited and we take tentative steps and that's how we begin to traverse the landscape of faith, humbly rather than capably. And that's really good news for somebody like me. So I regard this as good news for those of us who have felt God's call and answered and said, oh, I'm not sure I know what I'm doing. So now I know what I'm doing. I'm following God. Okay. So in this particular passage, believing has reference to a sufficient level of confidence in Moses to trust what he says and to accede to his leadership. That's what people need to do. And the trustworthiness of a leader is so important for that leader to be effective, is it not? I mean, we certainly don't know what it's about to have leaders that are not trustworthy, do we? We know nothing about that. But we do have leaders who, who will try to lead in the name of God and lead us to absolute tragic outcomes. 
So it's, and, and so we need people that are trustworthy. It's very striking here that Moses questions a word about the future, which God has said. God has said, and the people will believe you and blah, blah, blah. And Moses said, I don't think they will. So Moses is questioning God's ability to figure out what's going to happen. And from Moses' perspective, getting the people to believe him is a much more serious issue than he thinks God is giving it. And in fact, this is really, really, I heard myself a million times, a million times across my whole lifetime, saying in a private moment with God, God, you have highly overestimated me. <laughs> highly. You have led me to a place I am not sure I have the tools. I am not sure I'm capable of. And I'm. it's going to be all up to you. And God said, well, finally you get it. <laughs> finally you get it. So um, so that is the part of the, of the point of it. And also that, that this implies that Moses understands that a word that God speaks about human behaviors in the future is not necessarily realized, is not necessarily going to come to experience. That's his experience. So such divine statements are open to debate. And this is such good news, and I'll tell you about that in just a minute. But as it turns out, the people both listen and don't listen. They listen in 431, and then we find out that they don't listen when we're further ahead in chapter 6. So... Here's the interesting thing about God and Moses that I think we should pay attention to. Uh, many things, but especially their relationship. God treats Moses more like an adolescent than like, you know, a grown man who's making these decisions. Because God, when Moses pushes back, God doesn't scold him. He doesn't say, uh, I am the Lord God Almighty. And if you don't do what I say, why should you do it? Because I said so. God never says that to Moses. Moses pushes back. God takes this, the question seriously. He affirms that Moses has a concern. And then he gives him additional resources for his concern. That's what he does. He doesn't scold. He doesn't chide. He says, okay, well, then let, this is what we're going to do. If they don't believe, do this, or do this, or do this. And he gives them all these tools. And he says, that they may believe. He gives them the tools. So God recognizes the difficulty that Moses is facing and recognizes also that Moses is very unsure of himself. So I think that this exchange reveals such a compassionate and patient side of God with our questions, with our pushback, with our reluctance. And it's very uh, appealing to me. So God doesn't adopt a take-it-or-leave-it attitude with Moses. He never does, and that's good news for us also. God is open to disagreement, open to argument. He's even open to challenge, on Moses' part, challenging God's uh, um, omnipresence and omniscience. So God is clearly the authority, but God does not act as an authoritarian in this particular situation. It's more simple, and it's more than simple divine patience. It's an openness to consider, and this is big. It's an openness to consider seriously what the human partner has to say, because God has chosen Moses to be a partner, 
And so it's considering seriously what the human partner has to say. And this interpretation is firmly grounded in, in verses 8 and 9 because of the conditional language that's used. This is really remarkable. God acknowledges the uncertainty of the people's response by repeatedly using this conditional language. If they do not believe the first sign, they may believe, may, not shall. The second, if they do not believe these two signs, conditional, then a third sign will be given. And God is aware of the all the possibilities of the human response. So we know that God knows what all the things that we can respond as. And there will be no surprises for God with any of our responses. Yet, in God's own words, God does not finally know what the response is going to be. How can that possibly be? Well, this introduces a theological theme called restraint of power. Have you ever heard of that? It's restraint of power, meaning you have all the power in the world, and because of the way you have set things up, you restrain, choose to hold back some of that power. God has created human, humanity to be with free will, to make choices. Therefore, God does not presume to overlay God's own knowledge and God's own maneuvering to withdraw from you that ability for free will. So God has chosen to restrain God's own power in order for you to fully realize your free will. It's, it's kind of a hard um, it, it's kind of a hard concept, but it makes so much sense once you really begin to think about it. It is therefore possible that some spontaneous response on the part of the people will issue in a different result from what God now sees as probable. That means it may not turn out the way that God is saying that it will turn out because of the free will of the people, because of the restraint of God's power. So in 3, 11 through 12, Moses doesn't ask for signs, but God gives him signs. And, and there's a certain directness in God's responses. He says, okay, he introduces the signs in such a way that they become also signs for Moses as well as for the people. Now, the reason that I attach to your notes this little section about magic is because I think it's very important to understand the uh, what what role magic played in the everyday life of the Egyptians, ergo the Israelites who had been also integrated into the Egyptian life, in order to understand these signs that God gave, and later the same signs are, are, are mimicked and practiced by the Egyptian priests. How can that be? So it's fascinating that the Egyptian magicians had secret arts whereby they could do at least some of what God does here. Now, I'd like to flip that and say this. It appeared that they could do what God was doing. They can't do what God does, but God can mimic what they do. Does that make sense? God could do any of this, sure. But the people were so immersed in the, in the idea of magic. It was their everyday religion, magic and the arts and spells and superstitions and all of these things that the priests could do, these magic tricks and all of this stuff 
So God uses their deep belief in magic to demonstrate for them that this is the real thing. Now, some commentators have a real problem with God, what they call stooping to magic tricks. But the fact of the matter is God knows what it's going to take to pull these people, to get their attention so that they will validate and acknowledge that this is these people are sent from something other than uh, just another guy off the street to lead them into who knows where. So it becomes an attention getter. And that, so this, that's how the signs function. And God exactly knows how to enter into any culture. And this is a model for even our missionary uh, ideas is we don't go and take all their culture away from people anymore. That's how we used to do it. But now we enter into the culture and see what God is about into that culture where they are now. So we come to the, the next step. And so the signs function as an attention getter to plant the notion among the people and Pharaoh that something mysterious was afoot. So now we come to the second section, which is 4, 10 through 17. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I have never been eloquent. Here we go. Neither in the past nor even now that you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who gives speech to mortals? Who makes them mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, Please send somebody else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, What about your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know that he can speak fluently. Even now he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, his heart will be glad. You will speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you what you shall do. He indeed shall speak for you to the people. He shall serve as a mouth for you, and you shall serve as God for him. Take in your hand this staff with which you shall perform the signs. Okay. So up to this point, Moses has been skeptical and resistant to God's plan to use him and to deliver God's people. And he has offered objective after objective after objective. Now we come to a point where he offers another objective. And he says this time he focuses on his own abilities. Now, the way it's written, we're not sure if Moses was saying, people don't listen to me. Or if he was saying he had an actual speech impediment. It, it, it could be either one and it could be both. It could be that he had a physical speech impediment and therefore people didn't listen to him. Or it could just be like, nobody ever listens to me. But he uses that as the next excuse. And verse 11 leads us towards this. Anyway, but God will have none of it. And God responds to Moses. His anger, he's getting hot now with, with all of these excuses. And so, but he doesn't blast him. He simply comes back to him with two theological issues. And one is, who made you? Do you think I don't know about your speech? Do you think I don't know you? And don't you think now you're surprising me that you're slow of speech or whatever? I made you, and I made you exactly the way you are, and you're the one I want. 
So, because you will need me and I will help you, I'll show you the whole, I'll show you it all. He says, I made you. And then he says, he speaks of providential activity. Whatever the case may be regarding God's creative activity, he says, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be your mouth. I'm going to show you what to say. I'm going to know, show you how to do it. So in other words, he's saying, I know you, Moses. You're not any surprise to me. And I'm going to make sure that you can do the job that you need to do. You need to trust me on this. In essence, God knows Moses' speech abilities well, and God calls him to the task. So he doesn't correct his speech, whatever the speech thing is. He doesn't correct it because, in a way, that would be saying, and so now to get the people to listen, let's clear all that up. So it doesn't get rid of it, but God works in and through human impediments. Aren't you glad? Isn't this good news? Because we're all impeded, and somehow... It's a constant reality for God. So this encounter provides a great insight into an important theological issue. And that important theological issue is our calling into ministry. So here's the good news. God does not call perfect people. That's the good news. It's the good news for all of us. God does not call perfect individuals to leadership positions among God's people. God calls people to do tasks with, as they say, warts and all. God uses the raw material that we are born with to see what our, our gifts and talents are. And then when we lean into God, God is able to shape that raw material into something quite unique and quite wonderful and exactly what he does with Moses. But God has discerned that Moses has the raw material of leadership and that he can, be, he, can be, he can be sculpted, he can be formed into potter's hand and all of that. So um, this is wonderful news for us. And God knows perfectly well what Moses' gifts are. So this is kind of continuous with how God chose women. Remember those five women? God chose those five women, the lowest of the low, people who had no say, had no property or whatever. And God said, women, you have a job to do. And they went out and did it and changed the course of history. So it's a reminder that God is in, is in the driver's seat and God is the one who calls you and equips you. So his ineloquence turns out to be an asset. And his response is very different in this, though. And this is what makes God, I believe, angry. Because Moses now is impeding God's plan for redemption. God's plan for redemption rests on what God has chosen to be Moses, to lead the people so that the people can be formed to be people who will carry out God's plan. And on it goes through the New Testament and right up to us sitting here together. And now Moses is impeding that. And also, Moses is all directed towards himself, what I can do and what I can't do. And in fact, what, he's, what God is saying, what about the people? The people who are crying out back there, don't we have something to, don't we owe them something? But Moses hasn't been, that hasn't been part of his thinking. So God gets a little angry with him and he says, all right, all right. How about we get your brother Aaron? And then he, he, he says, Aaron is already on his way here. 
because Aaron has this impulse inside of him from some strange place that says, I'm, I need to go talk to my brother, and I'm going to welcome my brother, and it's going to be a grand reunion. And then God uses that impulse, or did God instill that impulse? So God says, Aaron's on his way. Aaron is a great speaker, and Aaron also is a Levite. So you, you know, Moses, I'm going to tell, tell you, you're going to tell you're going to tell Aaron, I'm going to help Aaron, but I'm going to speak to you, and you're going to be God to Aaron. That's what he says. You're going to be God to Aaron in telling him, and then Aaron is going to tell the people, and all will be well. And then it, we find out that, that Aaron is much more receptive, much more open to this plan than Moses was. And so they're in this together, and Aaron says, okay, all right, I'll do it. But here's what happens. Then what happens is Aaron is then given the priesthood and it's taken away from Moses. So Aaron becomes the priest and Moses is, is, uh, lacks that in, his, in the future. So plan B, which is what God said, okay, we'll come up with a plan B. If the, my plan A is for you to be the one Moses, and that will not be touched, but I will come up with a supporting plan for you meanwhile. And it turns out, as, we, as, we, as we'll see in the coming chapters, that the interim plan, plan B, was just an interim plan to get Moses onto his feet because little by little we see less and less of Aaron, and by chapter 13 and 14, when everything blows apart, Aaron is, Aaron is missing from the narrative. So it does what it's supposed to do. It gives him that um, comfort and that security at first to get the people on board, and then he gets his own feet. So he remains central in it, and Aaron dis disappears later on. So God's possibilities are related to what God has to work with in the world. And this particular section ends with Moses' silence. There is nothing yet which indicates that Moses has accepted to take up that uh, leadership role that God has asked him to do. So we come now to Exodus 4, 18 through 23. Okay. Moses went back to his father-in-law Jethro and said to him, please let me go back to my kindred in Egypt and see whether they are still living. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. The Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt for all those who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons, put them on a donkey, and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses carried the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. I said to you, let my son go that he may worship you, worship me, but you refuse to let him go. Now I will kill your firstborn son. So it seems to, it, it's best to understand this particular, this particular section as a text that's circling around the subject, okay? It's circling around the subject, and it's viewing this transition. This is a transitional piece from getting Moses from Midian back to Egypt. So this is transitional. And, it's, and as typical of transitions, there's ambiguities and there's uncertainties. And in this case, it's the issues of life and death 
compound the complexity. It's the issue of life and death going on back in Egypt. And the, the last speech that has been that God gave is spoken in anger. And it's the it's the end of this long dialogue between God and Moses. They've been at this since chapter two, since the burning bush. And they've been having this dialogue. And now that dialogue has ended. And now the activity is, is um, more pressure towards moving forward. So he, he asked to leave Jethro. He takes his leave from Jethro. But he doesn't tell Jethro why. And we don't know why he doesn't tell him why. But he doesn't. He keeps it secret. And he packs up his family and he heads back to Egypt. But I wonder if you notice something. What it says in the scripture, it says... Taking the staff of God, he left. So that staff, do you remember what he did with that staff? So when, when the scriptures say it, it's odd because Moses never says, I'll do it. I'll do it, God. I'm your man. Never says it, but it says he took the staff, and that indicates that he, an openness to the divine commission that God has given him, but he never directly says it. So there's no divinely determined future for this. Verse 23 is usually translated, and I say to you, if you refuse, and this is God speaking to Pharaoh, if you refuse to let him go, meaning that there's a window that if you acquiesce, the outcome could be very different. So, so he says that. And, and I just, let, let me pause here really quick. I I, I looked at that, and it made me think of Judas with Jesus. When Judas was with Jesus in the upper room, and, and Jesus looks at Judas and says, Judas, go quickly, do what you have to do. I feel like there was this moment. There was a moment where that Jesus was providing to Judas where he could have said, nah, I'm good. I'm staying right where I am. And, 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 and that the, all of the events would have unfolded in a different way. There was a moment for it to be different. There was a moment when Judas went out, when he came up to kiss Jesus, that it could have gone another direction. So there are all these moments where God has called us into partnership as humanity, that we have an opportunity to redeem the outcome. And I think that's pretty beautiful. So he takes the staff and he, and he, um, uh, and he continues to go. And it's, there's a, um, the absence of any reference to timing or frequency also kind of is a reference to open-endedness in the statement. So here's the thing. What it's saying is that it's not inevitable. This whole thing, the plagues and all of this stuff, what, what God is saying is it's not inevitable. If, if you'll let my people go, None of these things will happen. Isn't that beautiful? But because of the hard-heartedness and the stubbornness of, um, of Pharaoh, things came to pass. While the, the shape of the future is probable, it is not finally certain that this will be the killing of the firstborn. He says, he's, he's giving them a four-statement. So it's possible at some point along the way that this will be uh, stopped. So now let's come to this very, very strange story that has been dropped into this narrative. Did you read it? And did you think, what? <laughs> what is this story about? All right, let's come to that. 
That's 24 through 26. On the way, at a place where they spent the night, the Lord met him and tried to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Truly you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he led him alone. It was then, she said, a bridegroom of blood by circumcision. What does that mean? If you're like me, whenever I read, the first time I read this uh, so many years ago, I went, I did a little Scooby-Doo thing. Well, 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 what? But as many commentaries as I've read, and I even traveled to the Midrash, which is the rabbis trying to make sense of this particular um, uh, story, there's a couple of theories that are floating out there that are interesting, but there's one kind of rabbi that made this proposition that I think is the most likely. Well, for example, so we have this crazy story, and, and the reason it's so crazy is because the way they use um, pronouns, adjectives, and all this stuff, it's never clear in any translation who's doing what. It's, it's, is God the one trying to kill him? Because after it says, and God met him and tried to kill him, and then it says, then he, and it isn't refer to God, and then it says, uh, and then we don't know if it's the child or it's Moses. There's all sorts of confusion in this particular story to take as a, uh, you know, to take it as a literal story. But one Midrash uh, author I thought was very poignant because as we just read, the words that, that um, God gave to Moses to say to Pharaoh is, you have killed my firstborn which are the Hebrew people. You have killed my firstborn, and now I'm going to kill yours. So this Midrash says this story is a setting up. It's a foreshadowing of the Passover. So we have, we have the element of, of God, the angel of death, passing over and killing the, the, the child, the children. And we have what sets the, the Hebrew people apart in the Passover. Do you remember? Blood. It's the blood that they have to uh, put over their lintel to say we are a, the we are your people, we are the the Hebrew people. So there's that blood, and then there's the whole setting apart of those who are circumcised. So we have this crazy story of Zipporah, the the you know Captain Marvel, who <laughs> jumps into the middle of it with her flint circumcises her son, and some rabbis say, why weren't those children circumcised? That's why God wanted to kill them. That's what they said, because they weren't circumcised. So circumcise that child and then whip that foreskin over and hit Moses with it and then called him the bridegroom of blood. And nobody, not one single commentator, not one single rabbi knew what the heck the bridegroom of blood meant. None. And... Uh, they also understand that there is a book in Jewish tradition called the Book of Angels and Demons, in which some um, rabbis say this was kind of a mixture of that story that was added later, that there was a demon that uh, dealt in blood and in killing children. So there's a mixture of that. So you asked me earlier, what does that story mean? And I'm here to tell you, I don't know. But here's a, here's a possibility that this was a foreshadowing of the Passover that was to come. And I hope that's helpful to you. So we are in our final reading. 
The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and he met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him and all the signs with which he had charged him. Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the Israelites. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and performed the signs in the sight of the people. The people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had given heed to the Israelites and that he had seen their misery, they bowed down and they worshipped. And the, the, the order at the end of that chapter, the order of things that happened, is extremely, extremely important. So let me just try to condense what I'm going to say. So God speaks to Aaron for the first time here, and, he, um, and, and, the, and the brothers meet. And he uses Aaron's impulse to come and meet Moses. And so when they meet, and once they meet, and once Aaron gets on board, things happen really fast. Did you notice that? Really fast. All of a sudden, they're on their way to Egypt. They come before the elders. And all of this stuff happens very quickly. The author doesn't waste even a word about the trip. After, you know, this crazy story that we just read, there's not a word that's mentioned about any of that as we get on. Instead, he describes immediately the gathering of the elders and then how Aaron is the one at the, with the interim plan who shows them all the signs and, and, um, and, and tells them what God has said. Who is he showing these signs to at this point? The Israelites, that's right. These signs, these magical signs, are for the Israelites so that they will believe. And guess what? They believe. Now, the next section of that is, and then they worship. They did not worship in response to the signs. They believed in response to the signs. But what does the text say is the reason why they worshiped? Just go back and read that. It's very important for you to differentiate these two things. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and perform the signs in the sight of the people. The people believed, period, okay? Now let's pick it up. And when they heard that the Lord had given heed to the Israelites and that he had seen their misery, they bowed down and they worshiped. So it's really important to understand that even when we look at, even when we look at this, the, the miracles of Jesus, even, it's not particularly the signs and the miracles that make us worship. They help us believe. But what causes us to worship is when we remember and identify that God is with us. And that's the act of worship. You guys, I finished on time. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> But isn't that, isn't that just so exciting, what, how it's setting it up? And we're marching now towards Egypt, and the Egyptians don't even know what's coming. They think it's just these ragtag bunch of people. It's not a whole army that they're fortifying for. But what they don't count on is that behind these few people, the living God, and that's what's to come. So thank you all so much, and I hope you enjoy your small groups, and I will see you in church. <laughs>